Hello, this is Richard Joy, Executive Director of ULI Toronto, and welcome to our special podcast series, In Case You Missed It. In this season, we delve deep into the ULI Toronto archives to present past speakers of our signature annual fireside chats, featuring key industry leaders and city builders from our region, their perspectives on the past and the future from the time we recorded, and their sage advice for emerging industry leaders. That these interviews were recorded as much as a decade ago adds a special dimension to these podcasts. They are already time capsules of a different era. In this episode, Peter Gilgan, CEO of Mattamy Homes in 2018, with Mary Federo, EVP and Chief HR Officer at Mattamy Homes. We hope you enjoy. And it is my pleasure to welcome you all here to our 10th annual Fireside Chat. Can't believe we've done 10 of these. As tradition dictates, we have an amazing discussion for you tonight. Our program committee is to be especially congratulated for putting together this year's program, which uh, has become another ULI tradition, a full house and a sold out event. So thank you all. I'd like to first thank our sponsors for this year's Fireside Chat, whose generous support has made this evening possible. They are McMillan, our lead event sponsor. Atrium Mortgage Investment Corporation, Cone Partnership Architects, Milbourne Group, NAC Design Strategies, and RBC. Please join me in thanking them. <laughs> Turning to tonight's program, we are excited to have Peter Gilgan, founder and CEO of Mattamy Homes, in conversation with Mary Federo, EVP and Chief HR Officer at Mattamy Homes. Peter is one of Canada's most successful entrepreneurs in many ways, thanks to his innovative business practices. In establishing Mattamy Homes, Peter studied home design concepts from all over North America and Europe. Inspired by the new urbanism movement, he set out to build communities that broke away from the bland and impersonal developments he saw popping up around the country at the time. Appointed to the Order of Canada in 2013, Peter's commitment to philanthropy and community building is unparalleled. From healthcare to physical activity, to higher education and community legacies, he is truly a respected and dedicated community leader. Peter established Mattamy Homes in Burlington, Ontario in 1978, and since then it has grown to become the largest privately owned home builder in North America, as well as Canada's largest new home construction and development firm. The scope of Mattamy's operations encompasses land acquisition, community design and development, and housing and parkland design and construction. Today, Mattamy continues to produce everything from village homes to single-family detached homes, as well as mid- and high-rise condos across the GTA, Ottawa, Calgary, and Edmonton, in, in addition to 10 markets in the United States. And I can say from first-hand experience, it's a real pleasure working with them. They're a great company. Of course, Mattamy is not run by Peter alone. He has built an incredible team. Another crucial piece of this puzzle is Mary Federo, Executive Vice President and Chief Human Resources Officer. Mary is also the Chairman of Peter Gilgan, the Peter Gilgan Foundation and is on the Board of Governors of the Calgary Parks Foundation. Mary holds an MBA from the Richard Ivey School of Business and was named as one of Canada's top 40 under 40. It is safe to say that these two are an impressive pair, and with this, I will turn the floor over to Mary and Peter. Please join me in welcoming Mary and Peter. There we go. Thank you. Where, which side is my good ear? Oh, uh, okay, okay. <laughs> What's that, Mary? No. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is what happens Hi. every day at work. Hi, everybody. Hi everybody. 
Uh, thank you very much for joining us. This is a real treat to be uh, introducing my boss. I'm getting a little bit of feedback here. Hopefully we can uh, manage that. Um, I uh, am really thrilled that so many people came out to hear me speak. <laughs> I know the truth. Peter is an impressive guy. I joined Mattamy about eight uh, years ago. I came from a completely different industry, health sciences. And uh, I, I don't know if I've told you this, Peter, but when I got the call about working with you, I said, who's Peter Gogan and what is Mattamy Holmes? <laughs> I didn't know that uh, until much later that Peter is actually a rock star in this industry. So, and one of the main re reasons I decided to join Mattamy was actually because uh, it's a great company, great culture. Um, mostly it was about Peter as well. I mean, he's a visionary and he uh, had a really compelling story about how he wanted to grow Mattamy Homes and um, I wanted to be part of that. So it's a real honor for me to be here tonight with you and, uh, and uh, have this time to question Peter about his career, his personal life, his views on policy and government and a whole host of questions. So if you're okay, why don't we get started? There's only one comment that Mary's not telling you the whole story why she joined the business. Um, we have a whole bunch of farms that seem like they'll never get developed. This is not a political speech, of course. And Mary, Mary, loves, to ride, Mary loves to ride horses, so she figured maybe there'd be a way to kind of keep yeah. some horses at the... Uh, yeah, I keep so that was really the, the yeah, yeah. No, that's true. I keep suggesting that we have a, uh, what do we call it, the resort portfolio, the resort division, mm -hmm. uh, which could include ranches and yeah. uh, <laughs> land in Turks and Caicos. And so yeah. Yeah. I, I volunteer to run that. Right. So Peter, I'm going to get started with a really easy question to warm us up. Uh, what's your prediction about the housing market in Toronto? <laughs> um, I think the fundamentals are just fine. Um, I think that, um, you know, we have great job growth. Uh, the, the rest of the economy is doing great. Um, the immigration numbers continue. Uh, the ability to overload the market with supply, as you would all know in this room, does not exist. And so, I'm close to declaring the housing recession, close to, not quite yet, but close to saying it's over. And, um, but I also would say that hopefully we learned a little lesson, hopefully, about not getting too far over our skis as far as pricing is concerned. And we just became completely disconnected with the help of a, a lot of speculative purchasers uh, from anything related to affordability. And at the end of the day, people got to pay for their house with their paycheck. And we're so far out with that that I'm very pleased that we reined in a little bit. And my fervent hope, quite frankly, is that we don't follow the Vancouver trend, which we're seeing that double-digit price increase again. Because all, you know, I've been there before. And all it leads to, when you go that high, it hurts when you land. And it not only hurts the people in this room, 
but it hurts a whole generation of young home buyers, which in turn hurts us because they become completely disenfranchised with the idea of home ownership and we lose a whole cycle of people. So it's, you know, it can be altruistic if you want, or it can be self-serving, depending on how you want to look at it, and to some extent it's the same thing. Uh, there's lots of reasons, I hope, that we keep prices under control. Of course, we're not in charge of that, the market is, but I sincerely hope that we get back to trying to make, you know, an honest buck. One of the maybe follow-on thoughts to this uh, whole topic is, um about the recession, you said you're almost willing to declare that we're kind of past the tough times, but you've actually lived through a number of recessions. And what is your advice to the industry, to folks in this room about how to kind of weather them? Well, I guess one thing we're learning once again is that no two recessions look exactly the same. And, um, you know, that old saying, cash is king, you just don't want to be too far stretched um, at the end of a cycle, um, and um, what we always do is we try to get in front of the problem. We try to run at the problem instead of run away from it, because it ain't going to go away. And so we try to run right at it and tackle it immediately. And I'll share with you that Madame started to prepare for the housing downturn in August of 2015. And we started to prepare for it in a very organized and structured way. And you might say, well, that was a year and a half too early, and you're right, but I'd rather be too early than too late. And we put in place at that time a number of procedures and policies and protocols that we hadn't had in our business before in order to best protect ourselves from a future that was a little less certain than had been before. And for us, it's, it's worked extremely well. So you can't prepare enough for uh, a housing downturn or, you know, and we're in a cyclical industry. Why the hell do you think we make, you know, in the grocery business, they make 3% returns, right? Maybe 2% because everybody buys bread every day. And we, we, bit, we make bigger returns, but the problem with the bigger returns is there's bigger risk. And you see, you've got to be ready for both. And you know, we love the big returns but we tend to ignore the big risk. Just try and be ready for it as best you can. Mm -hmm. You mentioned uh, the affordabil affordability issue and young people. Um, what would your advice to the next generation of home buyers be? I don't think, I really don't think that they should wait for prices to go down anymore. I think that the cream has come off I think that, to smile in the room, I think that uh, uh, at our business, we've certainly seen a, a hugely positive response in the last 90 days or so uh, to a resetting of a price that's uh, like the price of 16 or 18 months ago. And, uh, and the good news is these are people showing up as families to buy a house. This is not to three, three brothers each buying a house and all that kind of business. These are buyers. These are people that are going to actually move into the home, which is extremely healthy for the market. The condo market is a different matter, of course, but, and, uh, but uh, on the uh, ground-related stuff, um, 
it's a good time to buy. The high-rise market, which is now represents what nearly 75% of new home sales, is crazy. But um, uh, once again, it's 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 healthy. Um, I don't see prices going down anytime soon. There are way too many pressures, uh, price sort of price push pressures that are going to keep prices uh, at the level they are right now. In Toronto, anyway. In Toronto, anyway, absolutely. Yeah. 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 Um, Peter, we're celebrating our 40th anniversary at Mattamy. Next summer. This, this summer. Yep. Um, <laughs> when you started the company with one or two lots back in 1978, 12 years in old, yeah. Burlington. Yep. <laughs> Could you ever have imagined that this is the company you would have built? Oh, absolutely not. <laughs> no, no, no way. Uh, you know, really, I just wanted to make a good living initially and have some fun and try and build nice-looking homes. And uh, that was kind of my ambition, was to, uh, was to um, build houses that look great, that, that, that lived well, and that people really loved. And, you know, um, and, you know I was, when I started, I was really doing custom homes for people. Um, so there was a lot of uh, interaction with the customers. I spent an average of 40 hours with a customer before I actually got them to contract because I didn't know when to shut up usually. But yeah. anyway, are you sure you can afford this house? You know, and all that stuff. And um, um, anyway, um, uh, I had no uh, no no idea of this. But it's funny uh, the sort of stepping stones. You know, because growth is never like that. It's it's kind of like this, right? And um, always the stepping stones were as a result of a big housing recession. In, and I've learned to say, and one of the kind of Peterisms that we say around the office, hopefully all the time, even when I'm not there, is um, every problem, every challenge is really just an opportunity hiding inside. And I really firmly believe that, and, for, and, and in my career, that's proved to be the case. So recessions aren't so bad. So we're with a great group of uh, people who are interested in land, land development. Talk to us about your very, very first land deal. Do you remember hmm. it? So yeah, I mean, so there was a there was a there was an a, an accidental one because I was buying two lots from a small developer who was an ex-NFL football player and he went bankrupt. So I had to, finish, I had to pave the roads. I still think there's a $3,500 LC outstanding to the region of Halton for that <laughs> development. We, we, and hopefully the curb is still in great shape and one year we'll get it back. But uh, uh, the first um, uh, intentional land development was a 50-acre plot of land in Oakville that I bought in 1986. So that's a little over 30 years ago. I'd been a builder up to that time, buying service lots, pretty much. And um, uh, I I'd had the good fortune to be invited to join, a, uh, to go into partnership with a company called Genstar, who owned uh, this big development out in Oakville at the time called Glen Abbey. And they had some certain corporate reasons why they wanted to bring in a partner to generate a, a pretty up there profit and loss statement for year end. I think it might have had something to do with bonuses. I didn't inquire, that's their business. And, uh, and their stock price and all this kind of stuff. So anyway, I ended up in partnership with them in the uh, mid-80s, and I kind of got a look inside, and I said, yeah, this is, not, this is a good, 
good business. It's great. And, um, you know, uh, as even back then, the land supply was starting to tighten up a little bit. And I just felt that in order to uh, be a little bit more in charge of your own destiny, you better start buying land. So the first piece I bought was 50 acres. In 1986, it produced, um, uh, let's see, um, 213 lots only back in those days. Four, uh, four UPA was about the right number, 4.2, something like that was a good number. And um, I sold 100 of them to Great Golf because I was too, well, I was, I was too kind of afraid to you know, hold the whole 50 acres myself, so I laid 100 service lots on the Great Golf and did the others ourselves. Great story. Yeah. Uh, how difficult was it to get it developed and permitted and? Uh, back then, not hard. It was a <laughs> we thought it was hard. <laughs> it was lay down. It was unbelievable, yeah. 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 Uh -huh. So, um, so maybe following along, fast forward to today. Talk to us a little bit about uh, the challenges related to the working with municipalities. Well, yeah. and I mean, I, I mean, this is like preaching to the choir. We, we Houston, we have a problem, right? We have a problem, and it starts at the province with attitude and legislation and it's permeated down through all the lower term municipalities. And I won't go on all night about it, but it's devastated affordability. Absolutely devastated affordability and predictability in our, in our industry. And it's disenfranchised, in my view, an entire generation of young Ontarians from being able to actually own something. It is pathetic, it's criminal, and it's become so entrenched that people think it's the new normal. People don't even, people don't know it was any different. Um, having uh, uh, a more diversified platform in which we trade, both in Canada and the United States, there is no place as bad as the GTA to get development done. And it's, started about 15 years ago and it continues to deteriorate. The good news for all of us is that everybody else is in the same boat. So if you can hang on long enough, you're okay because prices have gone up, right? But is that really the way to do business? Is that really the way to make money? Is that why we're in this business or are we in the business to provide great houses at affordable prices to, to support our country's economic engine. That's the way I, that's what I think we're here for. And if you do it well, you make fine money, but we're not here to, to sort of prey on people, the P-R-E-Y thing. And it's kind of what's going on. And I, I mean, this is easy to misquote this and, and for me to say it wrong, and I'm not trying to say we're, we're predatory, but we're put in a position where we don't have much choice. Because when you finally get a piece of land approved after you know, umpteen disappointments, um, you have no choice really because you know that it might be who knows how long till you get another piece and who knows what you're gonna have to pay for that other piece. So you have to take advantage of the situation. You, you have to, that's the only prudent business thing to do. But it's not 
it's not reasonable. It's not right, in my view. And it's not healthy for our country in the long term. Is that kind of bureaucracy, that, those, that policy situation, is that one of the reasons that you decided to diversify to the U.S.? Absolutely. Can you no, say more about that? Well, you know, look, um, in 1980, um, no, sorry, not that long ago. In the mid-90s, so that's uh, only 21 years ago, or so, 22 years ago, Mattamy was doing 3,500 ground-related ground houses in Toronto. 3,500 in, I think, 1994, 1995. 3,500 closings or sales, I forget which one. Two years later, we were doing 2,000. Not because we didn't have land. Not because we weren't fervent about trying to get it approved, or not because we decided it would be a smarter thing to hold it off the market, but because the tone, starting at the provincial level and permeating through the lower term municipalities, the tone changed. And I, I woke up one year and all of a sudden, you know, you remember in the, oh, anybody that's maybe a little older will remember when you used to buy farms and you'd give the farmer a, a, a VTB mortgage, you'd give them 40% down and then you'd, you know, and you had, oh, we had to give them a five, seven year mortgage or something, and don't worry, boss, by the time the mortgage is due, we'll be in development, we can refi the, the mortgage, you know, uh, we'll roll it into the bank loan because we're into, the we're into the development stage and the bank will finance, no problem. And then one year, all of a sudden, there's these cash flows coming in for me to approve, and there's all these big ass lumpy payments. I said, what the hell are those? Those are all those mortgages that came due. What? Yeah, well, you know, the land got delayed four years and the mortgage didn't, and so we got to pay off all those mortgages. It's kind of in just a sort of sign that something was changing. Andy, you're laughing. You saw it how many times, right? And um, it, 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 it's, that was bad 10 years ago. <laughs> Not compared to today. This is a donkey show today, so you can quote me on that. Because <laughs> I, 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 I mean it, and I'll say it, in front of any mayor in any municipality. Shame on you, and shame on the province for what they're doing to our economy. You might think I feel a little passionate about it, because I do. Peter, talk a little bit more about the vision for U.S. growth. We're in, I want to say, how many markets now? Eight, 10? Something like that. Something like that. Mm -hmm. Kind of, we add them every kind of year, so what's the, what's the plan there? Um, it's a big country. Um, as you would all know, uh, there was a, about a 10-year um, pause, let's say, in uh, real estate, uh, residential real estate activity there, where there was uh, a lot of people lost a lot of money. And uh, I'll say we were fortunate enough. I like to say I was too lazy to lo lose too much money, because we didn't get to too many markets uh, before things went bad there 10 years ago. Um, I think that. Um, there is significant opportunity for our business, for our company in the United States um, to continue to grow significantly, and we plan to do that. Uh, the, the, um, the size of the investment uh, is different than it is in Canada, than it is in, uh, in, at least in the GTA. Um, and 
The only, my only sort of caution to anybody in this room would have to be, it is, they speak English, but it's a different English. And um, if you just think you're going to go down there and show them how it's done, good luck. Because uh, it's a whole different way of doing business. It's a whole different way of negotiation. It's a whole different relationship with contractors, with municipalities. And we all have heard how many stories of the Canadian guys that went down there and got their arse handed to them on a plate, right? Many, many, many. Well, uh, not this boy so far anyways, but uh, we're, we're going we're gonna, to, you know, we have significant growth plans there, uh, very significant. Um, and, um, uh, you know, I guess we made our first investment there in 2003. So nearly 14 years ago, 15 years ago, and um, um, you know we we've paid the dumb tax a few times. And um, if you are ever thinking about it, make sure it's not your last nickel mm -hmm. you're going down there with. Mm -hmm. um, this group might be interested to hear about a couple of the big land deals you've done down there, and <laughs> and the vision for some because they're pretty astounding, actually. So. Maybe there's, um, wow, there's a number to get excited about. Um, so one, one is, one real cool one, quite frankly, who's heard of Celebration in Orlando? About a third of the room. So Celebration uh, was Disney's, is Disney's uh, gesture toward embracing new urbanism in, in residential real estate and sort of having it reflective of the whole Disney brand. Okay, who's been to Magic Kingdom? <laughs> About a third of the room. Okay, so it's kind of like the residential version of Magic Kingdom. Like everything's authentic architecture, is historically accurate, and so on and so forth, expensive to build. It's four-sided architecture instead of just stuck like three, three, three sides and, and a nice front and all that kind of stuff. It's been ongoing for 20 years. Uh, Francis Giuseppe, where's Francis? Okay, we went down there 20 years ago to sort of study how cool it was and what things we could borrow. And you remember that thing we did in Burlington and all that, uh, and all that stuff. Andres Duani, who was, was the demigod of planning at the time, was, was heavily involved in LRK and all those guys. And, um, and so we, we thought it was terrific. Anyway, the bottom, uh, fast forward to today, Mattamy is now the exclusive developer and builder of the rest of Celebration. So that's an awesome community for us. Uh, it's going to be, uh, it's going to be, um, uh, you know, the other guys have to clean out uh, that, that are there now, and, uh, and then we'll, we'll um, bring it home. Um, it's only 1,300 pieces, but it's a, it's, a, it's a halo for us. It's a really halo project for us because of obviously the inference um, of the Disney uh, brand. And, uh, and we're going further with them actually on some other matters. But anyway, that's another story. Um, and time to tell a little anecdote about yeah, that deal. Go ahead. Yeah, you want to? Okay, so this is a little sidebar, nothing to do with real estate. I was out in Burbank, uh, California, uh, finalizing uh, negotiations, and we had this lunch and this something they call the round room, which for Disney people is, you know, heaven or something, I don't know. But, uh, <laughs> uh, 
I say to the gentleman at the end of lunch, or during lunch, I said, look it, I'm gonna leave a couple million dollars on the table here more than I should, but I want something. What do you want? I said, I want 12 permanent passes to Disney. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, I don't know, blah, 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 blah. Anyway, short story is, he gets back to me um, sometime later and he says, look, he says, I could only get them for no, I said, I, no, well, it doesn't matter. I, I, I sort of wanted, anyway, he said, I could only get him for 10 years. However, each pass, and it has to be assigned to an individual. And I said, well, that's nice, thank you. And he goes, gracious, thank you. So each one comes with three guest passes. So now I end up with 48 <laughs> passes. I don't have that many grandkids yet, but anyway, yeah. so. Yeah, yet yeah, is uh, the operative yeah. word there. Yeah. So that's a great one. I could talk about more, but there's one, one, one probably that's uh, for the history books for Mattamy, it's, um, and uh, we're working with, uh, inclu in, in, including Rob's firm, who's m bringing massive value to our th uh, thought processes here, is a 25, it's a, a nine plus thousand acre development in Southwest Florida. Uh, we'll have approximately 25,000 residential units. We're currently building a baseball stadium for the Atlanta Braves there. There's a hospital. There's massive, massive infrastructures, and we're working with uh, LWLP on, on many things, but including uh, 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 designing a downtown and uh, like a whole downtown of nothing, right? It's just a field, and we're going to have like a, you know, the ye old downtown thing with the little boutique restaurants and all that stuff. And... Uh, so that's a pretty, pretty exciting development for us. Um, the kind of, we got a bonus out of it because um, there's a few thousand homes in the area already with no retail infrastructure in place. So already before we build one house, there's demand for that typical infrastructure, the drugstore and the grocery stores and all that kind of junk and the dry cleaner that you all hope for in a new, in a, in a new development area to help sell houses, it's going to be there when we start selling. So that's a just a happy accident that that kind of worked out for us. So that's pretty exciting. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, I could go on, but yep, there's yep, some those are two great pretty examples. cool ones. Yeah, very cool. Yeah. Um, Peter, one of the it's, this isn't one of the questions, uh, and I need to tell you that we have not rehearsed at all. Peter's hearing and seeing these uh, for the first time, but. Um, you often talk about how so much of Mattamy's success is uh, due to the fact that you, we've, you've had great partners. And I'm struck by the fact that there are a lot of partners uh, represented in the room here. Can you talk a little bit about the relationship uh, and the importance of, of those folks over the years? So, so partners in the broad sense, meaning, meaning uh, folks that, um, the, that while they may not have a financial stake in the business, they have um, um, a connection to the business, and as our business succeeds, hopefully so does theirs. Um, a long-standing relationship with a number of folks in this room, of course, uh, Q4 Design, France to back, and, and uh, an unprecedented run with uh, Silvano Tardella and his firm, Knack, and they're doing virtually, I think, all of our land use planning across all of North America. And so, uh, how big was your firm? We're still, I don't know. Where's it? How big was your firm when we started out? How big is it today? Yeah. yeah. You're getting less efficient. 
<laughs> yeah. So, uh, and it's, uh, you know, it's great to be able to work with, uh, you know, the same people that you've come to know and trust over, over a whole number of years. Uh, we don't have, um, you know, another obviously name worth mentioning would be Robert, uh, Robert Hill and the Hill Real Estate Company that's looked after our sales and for, gosh, 25 years now. Mm -hmm. But there are a lot of people that uh, you've developed these great relationships that um, have been really important in, in Well, we pay the bills. You know, we pay so. the bills, right, right. I even <laughs> see the accountants over here somewhere. There's PwC. Yeah, there yeah. we are. Yeah. I'm going to change topics completely and talk a little bit about your philanthropy. Um, you know, I interview a lot of uh, people as part of my role and uh, I'm out speaking to lots of group, uh, groups and, and one of the things that uh, people always ask me about is uh, tell me more about the foundation. We hear so many great things about the work Peter has done in terms of, um, you know, the community and so maybe let's just talk about kind of why is the idea of giving back important to you? <laughs> what are we here on this earth for, you know? And um, um, the funny thing is, giving money away inspires you to make more. Maybe I'll just put it that way. So that's, the bottom line is that, really. Mm -hmm. um, and um, if, if it's done, and giving money away properly is hard work. It's not, it's not just toss it in the wind. It's, there's a lot of kind of research and whatnot that goes into valuation that goes into it. And, you know, and, and then accountability after. And one of the things we're really, we're really fussy about is the accountability. Are you doing what you said you're going to do with this money? And what are the results as compared with what you said? It's no different than business, actually. Um, but it's... It would, it would feel kind of a little bit less, a lot less meaning to make money if you can't do stuff with it. And, uh, and some of the stuff we do is around trying to improve the lives of fellow humanity. And that takes, you know, place in, in more obvious places that many of you have seen around Toronto with a few buildings with my name on it and stuff. But uh, we're most thrilled and most proud uh, and um, invigorated, I guess I would say, by uh, uh, some of the work, for example, that we're doing in Africa. And we're, in, we're now in, in, three, in three countries in Africa doing things. And, and, um, and the impact that we're having is, is, you can taste it. You can see it. It's real. Um, you know, you build a new hospital tower, you know, intellectually you understand how that's going to help and work and, and you know, uh, private rooms as compared to uh, uh, wards and so it's going to cut down infection and reduce the hospital and improve the outcomes and blah, 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 blah. Yes, I get that, right? But, and you see your name in lights too, that's pretty cool, right? But the, some of the other work we're doing is really, really really, really neat as well, not, and not just in Africa, but in, in, in lots of parts of, uh, of Canada as well, in northern Canada and so forth. So it's kind of, it's, it's evolving. Um, um, it's really, Mary's the chair of the foundation, uh, and uh, my son Luke and daughter Stephanie really run it, and uh, I have really nothing to do with it other than show up on the odd field trip. 
and that suits me just great. Um, we're going to um, be increasing the funding to the foundation this year by uh, somewhere between 30 and 60 percent. Uh, so we're going to really take it up to another level again from, uh, from uh, business profits. We're going to be uh, budgeting, I haven't quite haven't finalized the number yet, but we're going to increase the funding, as I said, by another 30 to 60 percent, so we'll be able to do even more. And And, and anybody who's thinking about it at any, at any level, I'll tell you, I've never missed a dime. Never. And you won't. It'll be money well spent. So there are a lot of uh, young people who, uh, in this room who might be looking for some career advice. Can you talk about who your first mentor was? <laughs> Um, oh boy, um, I had I had a few, um, um, and uh, they were you know because I was a I was a chart accountant, okay, so I knew the numbers side. I had a couple of clients in the home building business. I knew what bullshit looked like because I, you know because you know if it didn't work, you couldn't lie to me because I saw it two years later on your books. So you know there's none of that stuff, but um, um, you know I didn't know anything about home building per se, and so I had a couple of great mentors on the sort of construction piece and all that stuff, some wonderful people. I had some wonderful two different folks, and Andy, you would remember one, uh, Bob Lowe, and uh, great uh, on the marketing, and Bob had a grade eight education, but man, he was street smart. And uh, crisp white shirt, French cuffs every day, gold cufflinks, a duke, eh? Everything always pressed. His hair was always perfect, but uh, and then he and then he pick up a piece of straw and start chewing on it. <laughs> Just blew the image. <laughs> but but um, he was the most street smart guy I've ever met, and he you know kept me. He got me. He got me a lot of great deals, and he and he saved my ass more than once. I can tell you. It was in 1989. The housing market went uh, went real bad, real fast in, uh, in uh, April of 1989, and um, the dynamics of the of the housing economy were very different then. Interest rates were very different than they are today, and so on and so forth. And Bob gave me the advice in December of 1989. We okay, so everybody said, wait till the fall. It's just a little thing. In September 89, the market will pick up. Oh, it's football season. Oh, it's raining. Oh, it's uh, whatever, you know, uh, Thanksgiving, blah, 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 blah. There was no market in the fall. Bob says, put everything you have on sale. I want you to take 10% off everything. Well, my average selling price then was 350 grand. And I got used to making 70 grand a house. So I thought I deserved 70 grand a house, right? Bob. Do you realize how much money I won't be making? He said, trust me, you won't regret it. So I took his advice and we sold every stinking house we had in about three weeks. Anybody else in the building business in this room in Toronto was cussing me. He said, what are you doing that for, you asshole? You're doing this wrong. By June, they had to take 25% off. By June. So that was, that was a great, great mentor. And I've had two or three others um, along the way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, some great stuff. 
Uh, in our, when we're back in the office, we often talk about the fact that one of our great constraints to continuing to grow is the fact that we don't have enough really great, talented people in every function and discipline that we need. Um, can you talk a little bit about what it is that we look for? Because there are a lot of people who would love to come to work at Mattamy, but what is it that you think has made the difference when it comes to kind of our people equation? So, insatiable curiosity. Brutal determination to get shit done and not talk about it forever. Uh, it's not always first in, last out type of thing, but it's what you do with, with, your, with your time during the day. Um, honesty. Owning up to problems, owning up to mistakes, real quick, um, is a is a very endearing thing, and it just reduces a lot of that stuff, which we see in organizations, would be very very important. Um, and you got to be smart too. <laughs> There's no substitute for just being smart, you know. Connect, being able to connect the dots, being able to see relationships, being able to see why that piece of data over there and this piece of data, over how they're related and, and, and how if you pull them together, uh, that's going to be really helpful. Someone who is a combination of, of respecting the traditions and the things that we've developed in the business, but at the same time saying, yeah, but the world is different. And someone who's not afraid in, in an appropriate form and a respectful way to bring on innovation in the business. And we all know there's so much room for us to innovate in, in, in the business we're in. Say more about that. Yeah. Well, I think we're, um, I personally think that we're um, at a, um, let's say a technological precipice in our industry. And um, I'd like to be make sure that we're on top of that precipice and not on the bottom of it. But you know what I'm saying? Uh, precipice maybe not the right word, but we're at the bottom of a cliff of technology. And I think you know we've kind of bumped along for 10 or 15 years, and you know, and you know, we've got some nice little systems going now, and so on and so forth. But I th I I believe that in the next five to seven years, there's going to be a huge transformation in terms of the way some firms in our business will use technology. And um, everything from, uh, so let's start with big data, let's start with artificial intelligence, augmented reality and virtual reality are gonna become the basic uh, chicken broth of how we make a successful home building uh, uh, and development operation. They're not gonna be, they're not gonna be um, 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 you know, nice to haves are going to be need to haves in, in, if you're going to be really successful in the next uh, decade or two. And uh, the danger I see for many of us is because it's a bit uncharted waters is to outsource too much of this stuff and then not own the learning. 
and I really try to guard carefully about us um, trying to own what we learn and not, um, you know, pay someone else to, to do the work for us, and then they 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 own the knowledge that's garnered from that experience. Um, so, okay, a couple of real sort of super quick examples of, um, that I used in my little stump speech in the last few weeks. And one would be, um, and this maybe is a little more applicability, but the couple of examples I'm going to give are a little more applicable to the U.S., but you can easily interpret them and apply them to Canada as well. So, um, in Tucson, which is a great little city we develop in, people worship the mountains. They don't have water, they have mountains. And they love them, and there's really good reason to. They're gorgeous, they change color during the day as the sun rises and falls, and so on and so forth, and they're just spectacular. And having the right view of the mountain adds huge value to your home and huge value to your community. So if we photograph the mountains, and during the land development design process, we're using an AR tool to ensure that the road patterns have exactly the right angles, and especially say that main paseo when you walk in, when you drive into that community, and it's looking right between those two peaks or whatever, and you're not off that three or four degrees, and it's just, it's, it can make, uh, Maybe it's somewhat subliminal, but a huge difference in how you feel about that community. Huge. Now, there's about three or four percent of us get that in our head right now. We don't need augmented reality to see that. But the other 97 percent, they need that to make sure that when they're designing that community. So you take that, and then you take the incredible financial tools that are available to us today and do modeling and say, yeah, well, that'll give us more value, but is it worth, is there a payback on it? And if you have a great financial modeling tool, which is, again, uh, you know, with a sort of modern, modern suite of software, you can easily, well, not for me, but for guys like Chris, can easily figure out, is this improvement worth making? Is there going to be a, is there going to, yeah, because we're going to lose four lots or something like that, but does it pay back more than that over the whole community and all that kind of stuff? So, that, I mean, it's just, Tons of tons of examples, designing houses, merchandising houses. Put the window there. Oh, wow, now the room feels bigger. How about that? Look at that. Make that window a little, a little foot deeper. Now that room feels twice as big, and so on and so forth. It's going to permeate everything we do. Um, um, we're, um, and, and, and I'm only really getting started because, you know, uh, okay, so. Why do you think Google bought Nest? Any right. ideas? I'm going to say data. <laughs> yes, sir, data. Damn right. Why, why do you think why do you think Amazon bought Echobee? Data. Why do you think Madame's partnering with Echobee? <laughs> <laughs> the Access to data is going to create massive economic value beyond which you know we we, we can't even fathom what it's going to be worth today, and it's going to it's going to impact the value of our real estate. 
that's going to, when you, when you connect real estate and transit and transportation, and you merge data about that, it's going to hugely affect the value of our real estate. And we're on top of that shit. And you, you guys should be too. Peter, as I hear you talk about um, the impact of data and technology, I I'm, I'm, can't help but think about the huge focus from day one that you've had on um, customers and understanding our customers. And uh, it might be kind of uh, instructive to talk a little bit about kind of your view on, on your approach relative to customer, customer data. Customer research. Too, customer oh, research. research. Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, um, <laughs> there was a business I bought several years ago in the U.S. and um, um, I went, you know, you go around and you visit and they're starting to build these model homes. And um, I said, oh, okay, so Tommy, how'd you know which model homes to build? And they said, well, we, we really don't. But well, they, didn't quite, they weren't quite that bold, bald about it, but it was basically, we're not quite sure, but we're gonna get them built and then we'll see if the customers like them. And if they don't, we'll build some other ones, you know? And we'll get it right, sort of, sooner. And that's like, oh boy, this is not my kind of company. We got some fixing up to do here. So we, we would rather spend much more time at the very beginning and uh, peel back that onion till we're right down to, what's the, what's, what's the thing that's left in the middle of the onion? That, the seed? I don't know what the hell's in the middle of the onion. What's in the middle of the onion? Anybody know? Any cooks in the room? Anyway, right down to the, like we keep, anyway, you know what I'm trying to say, we keep peeling back the layers <laughs> of the onion until, uh, until, there's, until there's nothing left because, you know, you want to know what it is that's going to really hit your customer right between the eyes. Now, in Toronto today, it's like, get a house for sale. That's it. End of story. But that's not reality. That's not, that's not a way to run a business. That's a way to run a sloppy operation. And, uh, and you can't rely on that forever. So for us, it's, it's trying to really understand the psychographics and the, and, uh, and the econom econometrics or whatever the word is of, of that consumer group. And it's very, as you guys all know, it's a very, it, you, you've got to fine comb it. It's, you know, you can move away, move five streets away and it's, it's going to look different. And we'll spend an awful lot of time. So one of the old Peterisms again is uh, go slow to go fast. You go slow to start, take your time, not too much time, but take enough time to figure out who's going to walk through that sales office door and exactly what it is they're going to want to buy, what they can afford, what appeals to them, and as importantly, what they couldn't care less about. And try not to give them too much of that last thing because that's just going to cost you money and they're not going to reward you for it. So that's kind of a, a thing that a lot of people don't kind of get that last part. You know, if two's good, three's better, not always. How have customers changed in your career? They've gotten younger, or I've gotten older. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, 
Okay, so obviously, um, in many ways, um, obviously, as the city's changed um, in terms of diversity, uh, our customers have changed massively, and uh, I'd say that uh, you know there's a greater there's a greater propensity for new Canadians to want to own homes than 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 folks who've been here even a few generations. It seems to be something even more burning in them is to own that house. So, uh, you know, uh, being, and I'm, no news to anybody in this room, but being really cognizant of the uh, demographic, I guess, of, of the consumer group that's probably going to buy is super important. Um, understanding that today uh, most people are working um, understanding today that there's been a huge shift toward um, a uh, premium on urban living for a significant segment of the population. Um, and uh, I think, you know, well, it's, it's far be it for me to really comment very much on the high rise because we're pretty new in the game and we're not in any way what I would call a significant player. We're, we're maybe at best a B player, but Chris is going to get us. Uh, to an A minus at least, but uh, in the next 12 months or so. But uh, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but no um, there. <laughs> but um, um, you know, uh, I think the reality is that for many people, um, living in a in a tower is going to be their their entire life. They're going to spend in a tower. And that's in, 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 this, in this environment, in the, in the greater Toronto region, they're going to spend their entire life in a tower. And um, hopefully there'll be a time when um, there'll be a better opportunity for us to make towers a little bit more livable than many of them are uh, today, where they're really, you know, sort of rental projects. And um, um, I'm not going to start to spill the beans on what some of the Madame's plans are, because that would be inappropriate, but, um, you know, um, again, I would just say it's to, to really try and look beyond just today's buyer, who's probably an investor, and try to, try to understand a little more what the real wants and needs are of the ultimate uh, folk, whether, they're, whether it's through ownership or tenancy, or it's going to live in that space. And I think there's room to improve our our, our efforts there. Mm -hmm. uh, going back to the question of innovation, um, one of the things that we're talking about, kind of playing at the edges of today at Mattamy is around the whole area of sustainability, um, kind of the impact that we're going to have in that whole yeah. space. Do you want to say a few words about that and what your vision is? For sustainability? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So. Um, Let's start by saying in 1978, the first house I built, I put extra insulation in the walls. And, um, and it wasn't much, but it was something above the building code. And it provided, I think, another R6 or something to the walls. And at the end of uh, selling the two homes, I asked the real estate agent, so what the customer? And, and um, uh, what? Oh, shit, I forgot to mention it. So that's where we were 40 years ago. And um, uh, at Mattamy, we've made many attempts over many years uh, 
um, that have not been particularly successful, frankly, at, um, at uh, sustainable initiatives. And so learning from our mistakes, we're, we set about to try and do it in a much more organized way. And one of the things that you, one of the things that uh, I think we've learned is, first of all, that in order for it to be mainstream, it has to pay for itself. So there's a bunch of stuff coming together at the, at the same time right now, which is kind of cool. So the cost of some of the technology is going down quickly. It's not quite Moore's Law, but it is going down. Uh, the cost of energy is not getting any less expensive. I'm not saying consumers will pay a premium, because I, I, if you're going to count on consumer paying a premium, good luck. Yes, you'll get 3%, we'll pay a premium, but the other 97% will not. So we have to repackage the whole thing. What we're doing is we're, uh, at a sort of at a high level, what we're doing is we're taking, we're, we're industrializing kind of how, uh, now this is, this is at the design stage, you can't go to a community today and buy this from us, but um, how the whole utility and energy model is delivered. And uh, for example, uh, we're in the development stage of a um, 400 lot uh, zero carbon community. And one of the features of it is that there will be a, um, a community-based um, geothermal system. So, and the traditional way is, you know, you put one plant in one guy's house and he has to manage it and it's massively inefficient, massively, the payback on it's like 98 years or something like that, and it won't work. So this is basically, the concept is simply to take, to do it at a, at a community scale, uh, you use the shared fact that one person needs heat and the other person needs cooling at the same time and it all goes into sort of a communal thing. Uh, you have uh, an industrial operator operate it and there's lots of utilities that uh, private utility operators want to own and operate this equipment. And the utility bill that the homeowner gets would be no different than the utility bill they'd get were it not a geothermal system, whether if they were heating their house with, uh, with gas and cooling it with electricity. And uh, yes, now there's pumps, you know, pay the electricity to run the pumps, but, you know, but the utility overall, see the overall cost of paying for the utilities will be the same. You just won't be generating uh, uh, hydrocarbon emissions uh, to do it. Uh, I'm being a little vague, it's a little bit complicated, but um, we're looking, we're doing this, and uh, we're uh, in extensive discussions in the southern United States with a number of the uh, electric utilities um, around, um, around solar. Uh, I'm going to cite Tucson again. They get 340 days of sunshine a year. So if solar is going to make economic sense somewhere, where might that be? You know? And, um, and again, sort of create, not, it's not on a house-by-house -house basis, although some of the equipment may be on the roof of a house, but you don't own it, and you don't pay for it, and you don't maintain it. 
and anything that's generated goes into a, goes into a community grid and gets and then gets uh, delivered to your house as you require it, um, and you you pay for it at the normal utility rates. But it's all renewable stuff, all zero carbon stuff. Uh, there's uh, it's kind of like drinking from the fire hose. There's so many things, and once you get it, you know it's uh, we've got some tremendous partners, uh, um, uh, including some of the typical utility companies that we're working with. And, um, you know, quite frankly, and to be candid about it, we've got a, this is one of the areas where at Mattamy we've, we've done enough talking, now we better get acting. And we're gonna hopefully see a lot of results in the next three or, three or four years about it. One of the most frustrating things about it is that same bureaucracy that I'm talking about. The status quo, the unwillingness on the part of some of the municipal bureaucrats, et cetera, to want to cooperate. And they just seem to want to roadblock it for whatever the hell their own agenda is. I have no idea. It's incredibly frustrating. We just want to go. And instead, you've got to stroke all these egos and stuff to just try and get somebody to move a piece of paper across their desk. It's just absurd, but it is slowing down progress. Um, I can tell you uh, I've become quite good friends with a, a very well-known Canadian uh, environmentalist by the name of David Suzuki. Many of you know his name, right? And uh, he and I, we were fishing this summer out in uh, BC. I got some pictures. I'll show you on the phone after. And um, caught some great coho. But anyways, um, and so someday I want David to be my little secret weapon because I want him to go into a municipality and scold them in front of town council for not getting off their butt and doing something instead of just procrastinating and obfuscating for another 18 months while we study it. No, Ed, I'm not talking to this about the city of Mississauga, so it's okay. <laughs> you guys are great, okay? <laughs> but, uh, but, um, because uh, because that's what it's gonna that's what it's gonna that's what it's gonna take is is um, you know when developers come with this stuff how's it viewed some it's other way to make money right some other way to wang dangle the town into making more money developer we should be working together we should be working as a team and it's the most frustrating piece, as I said, is when you've got to push on the rope all, all day long to get some of this stuff done. Mm -hmm. Not always the case, though. Not always the case. No. We've got some great partners. So uh, I think it's time to open up the floor and uh, see if there are any kind of live questions. I, there are, are, there's at least one mic. Yep, there's one. There's two mics, so maybe wait to uh, have a mic in your hand before they ask the question so everybody can uh, hear it. Who's brave here? Oh, there's, okay. Alrighty, do you want to stand up and introduce yourself? Uh, well, my name is Amit. I work with Morrison Financial. Uh, my question to you is, uh, you said in, uh, from memory in 1989, I suppose, when the market went bad uh, too quickly and uh, too soon. I mean, uh, you know, too much and too soon. So uh, what about your prediction of today's market? Like, how do you see things evolving? The other... Uh, uh, Slightly different question is, in fact, totally different question is, uh, uh, you talked about uh, this distributed electricity generation uh, with solar. Uh, what's your view on uh, natural gas? Because, uh, you know, it takes 
uh, a single uh, shaft turbine and natural gas converts to both uh, gives heat as well as uh, electricity. So what's your view on uh, that? Thank you. Yeah, those, are, those aren't really related questions. Are they? <laughs> a twofer. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. So the first one was around market recovery and what that might look like. And the second was around uh, something having to do with wind turbines. Yeah. So okay, on the first one, uh, it was, uh, you know, in the, uh, Andy, would you say the second week of April 1989? April the 26th. Oh, it's third oh, week. Oh, exact. third week. Third week. Okay. You know what? I was always ahead of you, man. I was, I was, I would, hit me, hit me a week earlier. No, but anyway, April, whatever it was. April, April of 1989. So this time around, it was April of 2017, um, right? 17. Uh, the recession that started in Toronto in April of 89 lasted really until 1994. Uh, earlier tonight, I said that the recession that started in April of 19, of 2017 might be over. I mean, the recession, you won't get the price back, but you'll get the business back. There was no business for four years. We were fighting for business. And prices continued, continued to deteriorate for four years. It was like I said to myself back then, I, 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 have to, I have to copy people who are in the produce business and the electronics business to merchandise my stuff. Both, both of whom have products that the longer you hold them, the more they deteriorate in value. Did you ever pay more for a 10-day-old banana? No, right? Or a, or a 10-month-old computer? No, you don't. So you, you have to start to think like that. And that lasted for four or five years. Uh, I'm not seeing that this time. Not seeing it. Totally different dynamic. Uh, your second question, I didn't really understand. I think you had a point you were trying to make, which is that gas isn't so bad compared to oil or something or coal. Or Yeah, I know where you're going. Okay, so so some of the so some of the uh, you know so there is a challenge with some of the utilities whose model is around you know 50% of the what they bill you is around the cost of generating and 50% is the cost of transmitting. So if you interrupt that business cycle, you you've screwed up their their revenue model, right? And so some of the utilities, irrespective of what it might be, how well it might good it might be for the planet and all that stuff, and good for our, our, our uh, progeny and so forth, uh, it can go against the vested interests of big power. Yeah, great point. You're absolutely right. And so you need to look where the low-hanging fruit is. There are some jurisdictions in North America where it's the mandate of the utility to achieve a, a portion of... of uh, um, uh, zero zero carbon uh, energy over a, over a fairly short period of time, and so those are the utilities that are much more willing to work with us because they've been told they have to. Okay, uh, another question over here. Thank uh, thank you for this tonight. Uh, my name is Rob. 
Uh, my question is around sustainability. You were talking about that earlier, and I know you're building in Florida quite a bit. How does water factor into uh, your development and sustainability plans? Uh, potable water? Potable water, yeah. yes, sir. Um, you know, we haven't really addressed it very much yet, but I'll say this, that um, um, obviously um, the idea of creating uh, a community where you reduce the water consumption by, let's call it 30%, by putting the best, most efficient appliances throughout the entire house, from the washing machines to the shower heads and so on and so forth, and recycling the gray water for the for the water the lawns and all that, is certainly part of the future. Um, I, you know, I, we can't, we're not boiling the ocean, we can't do everything at once. It's, it's certainly on my mind. I think, it, I think it has relevancy not just in Florida. Uh, it has relevancy here too. We all have something called a development charge that we all pay, right? And in Florida they call it an impact fee, same thing. And part of that development charge is related to supplying uh, water and sewer infrastructure to, to the neighborhood and the community and the development area and all that. So, and as many of you would know, there's already in some municipalities a recognition that if you're building, let's call it a townhouse, uh, a, a below a certain square footage, that unit, that building unit is going to impact less, and therefore they they'll, they have a smaller development charge based on the idea there's going to be less water taken in and less sewer going out and all that stuff. So why can't we? do this on a community-wide basis. And my friend Ash Singh, he put me onto this because Ash is in the apartment rental business and Ash has figured out that when he buys an old apartment building that includes the utilities, is included in the tenant's rent. And he retrofits the toilets and changes them to the modern the taps and so on, he gets a good payback. So why can't we do that on a development here in Ontario? And why can't the municipality say, you know what, the pipe that we're running here now, instead of it being good for 10,000 homes, will now be good for 15,000 homes because each home is more efficient. So therefore, we can afford to uh, reduce the, the development fee by X percent, by a, whatever's a fair, fair percentage. Everybody wins. It's great. Everybody wins. But do you think the municipalities will see the wisdom in that right off? Good luck. The reduction in the impact fee could well be enough to pay for the extra cost of putting in these appliances. Could well be. Or at least go a long way toward contributing to it. And that's who loses? Nobody. But getting through to them, we'll have to leave that for Dr. Suzuki. You know. Okay, question over there. Yep. Hi, my name is Jessie. Uh, in terms of sustainability, uh, do you see American market is more favorable for the progress, or uh, Canadian is catching up? Um, it's you can't. I don't think you can talk about it on a on a countrywide basis. I think you have to talk about it on a on a city by city basis, and. Um, 
you know, some, yeah, I think that's the proper answer. It's not, it's not just kind of, it's funny because, you know, the leader of America is, you know, in the, he's denying global warming and all that stuff, right? But that's not what's going on in the cities. In the cities, they're concerned about it. And they're the ones that really make most of those decisions. I think everybody would like to hear you. Could you say it in the microphone? Yeah. I personally struggle a lot uh, mm. in terms of solar energy. When I was building a, uh, a home like that's off-grid, um, I see all this data coming in from America that I don't know if it's because the, the southern climate, they are very favorable in terms of what they can use. Like even with battery, I fought with the government what I can use in Ontario. And it was like, I don't know if it's because of my personal experience or the province here is just not very progressive because we're all a production country or, you know, if it's a municipality thing, I'm not sure. I, Another question? Yeah. I hear you. <laughs> yeah. Hi, uh, my name is Cheryl Case. I work in affordable housing and other areas as an urban planner. So my question is, so I'm going through the CMHC study that was released Sorry, could yesterday. you just speak a little more slowly? Yeah. Sorry. So I'm currently going through the CMHC study that was released yesterday. So um, one of the most interesting facts that I've seen in my brief reading is that um, the lack of supply response to increase the demand for more supply is a great contributor to uh, increasing house prices. Mm -hmm. And so um, I'm wondering what do you find to be the largest barrier? Is it that there is a lack of uh, land supplied for more housing or is it that overall the density is, um, does not you know, allow for the appropriate supply of mm -hmm. housing? So um, it's a, difference in point of view as to whether there's enough land available. And I know the province has some consultants who continue to assure them that there's plenty of land at affordable prices. And I've said before, bring it to me, I'll buy every goddamn acre. And they haven't, bought, they haven't brought me one yet. Um, there's, a, there's, a, there's just this inexplicable disconnect between how short we are of developable land and how long it takes. I'm all for regulation. I'm all for ensuring we don't do things that we shouldn't be doing. But what I'm not for is paper sitting on people's desks for nine months. I'm not for people playing power tripping games and all those crazy things to slow you down. I'm not for an unrealistic forecast that shows all this land is available for supply, but it's, but it's, it's, it's just completely untruthful. And it's affected prices, as you know, ridiculously. I mean, house prices have doubled, land prices have quadrupled, or whatever it is in the last you know, period of time, uh, or more. Um, 
And it's, you know, I, I, I don't fault anybody who owns land for selling it for the best price they can get. That's, that's the way the free market works, and unless we're going to go to the communist uh, thing, which I'm not an advocate of, uh, that's the best we're going to have. But it's government intervention at best, and at worst, almost interference with ability to get stuff done that's, that put us, and I'll put it right at their feet, that's the problem. So, okay, one last question and then, yep, go ahead. Hi, Peter, Blake Wyatt. Uh, when you started the company in 78, it was a market dominated by mostly single-family homes. And if you were entering the GTA market today where, like you said, 75% of new development is condo, how would you overcome that barrier of entry that's much, much greater and what would you do? Well, you can't, you know, I mean, obviously the condo business is the deep pocket business, so I wouldn't be starting there. But there's, there's always opportunity. It just looks different today. Um, but there's no, there's no free lunch. There's no substitute for hard work. You know, yeah, when I started the company, you know, you know how many hours I slept the first year? I took one Sunday afternoon off. That was it. And I don't know how long that went on for. That was it. If you're going to be successful, and you're going to start your own, you're going to be your own business, don't think you can do it in 40 or 50 or 60 hours a week because you're kidding yourself. If you're not prepared to put in 80 or 90 hours a week, don't even get started. And don't be planning to do that for just a few months at least the first three to five years. If, if you're willing to make that commitment, there's tons of opportunity. And I'm not suggesting everybody should do that, right? Because it's not the kind of lifestyle that everybody wants. But if that's, if that's what you want to do, that's the sacrifice you're going to have to make. I think that's a really great note to end on. Uh, good evening, everyone. My name is Derek Goring. I'm the uh, Vice President of Development at First Gulf and the Chair of ULI Toronto. On behalf of the ULI Management Committee and our advisory board, I would like to thank our guests, Peter Gilligan and Mary Federo, for making our 10th annual Fireside Chat a huge success. Thank you. <clears throat> One of the reasons I really like this event and what makes it quite unique is the really frank and informal conversations, and you certainly delivered on that, so really, really appreciate that. And obviously education is an important part of the ULI mandate. We learned a new land use planning term tonight, the donkey show, which is great. Um, and one of the, the favorite thing that I, uh, you said tonight among the many things that were great is giving away money makes you want to earn more of it. I've never heard anything quite like that and I thought that was uh, really great insight. As we've heard tonight, Peter's accomplishments in business, innovation, philanthropy, uh, and philanthropy are numerous and we look forward to discovering how Mattamy will continue to lead in construction and development, as well as what's in store for the future of home building across North America. And who better to help tell the story of Mattamy and its vision for the future than Mattamy's own Mary Federo. We thank you both. Uh, I'd also like to 
to take this opportunity to uh, thank, again, our event sponsors, our lead event sponsor, McMillan, as well as Atrium Mortgage Investment Corporation, Cohen Par Partnership Architects, Milborn Group, Knack Design Strategies, and RBC. Thanks again. <clears throat> and very briefly, I just want to flag a couple of upcoming events of interest. Uh, our fourth annual Meet the Chiefs Gala is on April 10th. I'm happy to say that we are pretty much sold out two months in advance. There are maybe one or two tables left available if anyone is desperate to uh, attend. That is the only way to attend is by purchasing a table. Um, it's another great opportunity to celebrate public and private uh, sector planning, the, the community here in the GTA. And secondly, our Women's Leadership Initiative will be hosting an event in celebration of International Women's Day as part of their She With He campaign. It will feature a discussion with industry leaders as they share strategies for sustainable change in bringing gender parity to the real estate and development world. We hope that you'll join us for that event on March 8th. And with that, I want to say one more thank you to our sponsors and to Peter and Mary, and a big thank you to all of you for attending tonight. Have a good night. Thank you.